This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. is the other side of midnight. I am Frank Morano. It seems like just about every issue in the world, whether it's an obvious one like a criminal justice issue, which whether it's a somewhat less obvious one like a political issue, or even issues related to religion, the media, union organizing, cultural issues, education, it seems like at the end of the day, sooner or later, the Supreme Court is either heard on these issues or someone's asking the Supreme Court to hear these issues. And that has led to a whole bunch of debates over the last 50 years especially, but probably over the last 200 years, about the proper role of the Supreme Court in America and the proper role with respect to the Supreme Court and the other branches of government and how that was intended to be framed under our Constitution. Well, some Someone who has been speaking out about uh, constitutional law issues and teaching people about constitutional law issues for a very long time is Hadley Arcus. He is a professor of jurisprudence and American institutions emeritus at Amherst College. He is a legal scholar par excellence, and he is the author of the new book, Mere Natural Law, Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. Mr. Arcus, it is great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's Frank. Let me begin with uh, your book. Your book is called Mere Natural Law, Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. I've heard a lot of arguments in favor of originalism over the years, and basically it goes something like it's the job of the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution as written, and it's not the job of the justices or any other federal judges or even state judges to insert their own preferences. You interpret the statute as written, you interpret the Constitution as written. When you talk about going beyond originalism, what is what does that mean exactly? What's the premise of your book, okay. and why did you write it? Well, since let me, you've put something else in that I should point out. I, we want to point out, I want to start this, I'm not making a case for an imperial judiciary. My understanding of the court is, is the understanding held by Lincoln and others about a court that comes under political restraint, where the political branches can push back against the court so that the court does not have the last word on these, contrary to the old line. Now, we can go back to that one later. But the point about mere natural law is really off to, as an offset to what, we, what has, we've been offered as originalists with a rather truncated originalism, uh, confined to the text, and forgetting the fact that the American founders drew their understanding of the founders of the Shah Constitution from principles that were there before the text. 
uh, I call this mere natural law because I'm trying out that book of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, where he simply drew on the conversation of children. What happens? What did conversation of children reveal about arguments about right and wrong, not likes and dislikes? Arguments are right and wrong. And they may not make no sense unless you assume that there are standards of judgment to tell the difference between right answers and wrong answers. We're drawing here on the teachers of the teaching of that great Scott philosopher, Thomas Reed in the 18th century, teachings on the precincts of common sense. Somebody who was read very closely by founders like James Wilson and John Adams. And the point was, the national law will begin with those precepts of common sense that are not only understood by the ordinary man, but the kinds of things that the ordinary man just has to know in getting on with the business of life. And before he's able to start bantering about the theories. So the line was before the average man would start bantering with a philosopher like David Hume about the meaning of causation, he knew his own active powers to cause his own acts to happen. Now, the American founders began there, and they knew those principles were there before the Constitution. They knew they would be there even if there were no Constitution. Just the way that John Quincy Adams said that right to petition the government is simply implicit in a free society. It would be there even if it hadn't been mentioned the First Amendment. It would be there even if there were no First Amendment. It would be there even if there were no Constitution. So my friends were the rich. I, I've been a teacher of the American founding. I've made a career of reading closely and expounding the writings of people like James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton John Marshall. But what the originalists are giving us is a crabbed version of the founding, in which they are confined to the text, and they quite miss the fact that the American founders were persistently moving outside the text of the Constitution in order to explain the grounds of their judgments. Well, for example, the proposition, the, the anchoring principle of, of the first law of all practical legal and moral judgment, that makes no sense to cast moral judgments or plays or blame on people for acts they were powerless to affect. We don't hold people blameworthy for acts they were powerless to affect. That simple principle is a source of, of strands that run through the Constitution, but it's not in the text of the Constitution. Yet some of our friends think that if a judge leaves the text of the Constitution, that he's simply being indulging in personal, personal preferences. No, if a judge goes outside the Constitution and says something like, anyone accused of a crime should have access to the witness against him for the sake of rebutting him. He's not appealing to his merely personal views. Nor is he appealing to his merely personal views by saying, well, it doesn't say in the Constitution about presumed innocent until give, proven guilty. People don't realize that. That's not in the Constitution. Yet why do people have such confidence that that principle is an integral part of our constitutional life? So I'm trying to get away from this kind of... This crabbed originalism was done in response to what they thought were judges running amok, mm. inventing new rights in the, under the Constitution. So abortion was nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. Therefore, federal judge should have no rights to proclaim there. But marriage wasn't, wasn't mentioned in the Constitution. When the court struck down those laws that barred marriage across racial lines in 1967, the advice was not that these people ran off inventing new rights not in the text, is that they, they, they invented false rights, specious rights. 
And the counter to that is not to say, oh, it's not in the text. The counter to that is to show them why those, that reasoning was specious and indefensible. So before we get into some of the the aspects of natural law that you feel were implicit in the framers putting together the Constitution and that the role of the court would be um, on very sound ground, keeping in mind, let's talk about um, what originalism is. If we're going to keep referring to originalism. Well, I just I, I just mentioned it. It's a, it. You said it precisely. First, we and I agree with this. We try to understand the Constitution as the structure that was laid out for us. And I study, we studied the American founders, the writings of, of Hamilton, Madison, Marshall, Wilson, because these are the people who made it. They made this, this frame of government, and they gave us the most luminous account of what it means. So, of course, we studied them. And, yes, we want to try to understand the Constitution as those founders understood them. But they don't give us the answer to everything. And those same founders felt the need to move outside the text on critical points to get to reach anchoring propositions that were absolutely necessary to explaining their judgments. So again, it's not an argument. It's not an argument over whether it's important to understand the founding as the founders made it and the structure they put in place. Yeah, I, I do want to know such things as whether a state can make its territory available as a military naval base for another country. This is a, a structural matter. We're usually not litigating over things like this. And Obamacare suffered a real jolt in 2010 on the way to passage because the Constitution, for the 56th time through peace and war, served up a midterm election. And people don't seem to realize, God, it was the Constitution doing that. You don't realize it because we're not litigating over this matters of structure. So we can defend that. We explain what really, what the real purpose was that of, of not, not allowing a state to make its territory available for foreign military power, quite consistent with the whole structure of the Constitution, understanding that. Okay, but uh, we're not litigating over these things. We're litigating over things that bring us into these moral arguments as to whether the Constitution is somehow contains a, a, a principle of running against capital punishment or whether it actually licenses the right of a woman to destroy an unborn child, something utterly new, uh, just condemned in our laws right until 1973. That's the kind of arguments we're having. And the other side said, well, they, the, the wrong was you invented a new right. It's not that they simply invented something not in the text. The federal government had ample reason to deal with abortion before Roe versus Wade. It had to deal with abortion in military outposts abroad, in, in diplomatic outposts, abortion in the territories, abortion in the District of Columbia, naturalization in abortion. Many reasons why abortion could be the legitimate concern of the federal government. What was at issue here was the creation of a right that could not really be explained and justified. That was the heart of the problem, not whether a right to abortion was or was not mentioned in the text of the Constitution. And that's where the arguments that's where the arguments tend to focus, even within the circle, the family of conservatives. All right. We're talking with uh, Hadley Arcus. His book is Mere Natural Law. No, no, yeah. Yeah. Originalism okay. and the anchoring truths of the Constitution. So you you've alluded to a couple of the pre-constitutional assumed natural rights that are part of natural law. Give me a few others. 
Oh, how about how about the how about the Second Amendment? Okay, on on arms, mm-hmm. on the right to bear arms. Now, I was talking with my my dear friend Justice Scalia, and I said, when you talked about the right to bear arms, you were invoking the right of somebody to engage in self defense, right? Right. I assumed you meant the right of an innocent person to fend off an unjustified assault, right? Right. And I said, well, those words aren't in the Second Amendment. And your 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 liberal judges don't find them there. So what makes that true? Now, do you say that many people at the time proclaimed the right to self-defense, and many of those people who voted for the Second Amendment actually read them? In that case, you're just be turning the Constitution into legislative history. What are they? How much do they know it? But you, what's the wrong question? It's the answer to the wrong question. The real question is: Is there in fact a deep principle that establishes the right of an innocent person to have access to a lethal weapon when necessary to protect his life. And once you have that, it explains the Second Amendment, but that principle is nowhere contained in the logic of the Second Amendment, in the text of the Second Amendment. In other words, to understand the Second Amendment, you have to trace it back to what the real principle was. The other side wants to say, no, it's no right to, there's no right to... Uh, with use guns, it's all a matter of of, of uh, a militia. Simply the right to states to form militia. No recognition that there was a right here uh, of a of a uh, an innocent person to have access to a lethal weapon when necessary to defend his life. That principle, as the that principle is true, even if it's not in the Second Amendment. It's true. It'd be true even if there were not constitution, no constitution. We'd have to be, and we were just addressing this whole question anew. But that's exactly exact the nature of the problem, that persistently even the conservative judges were, um, were have to uh, face this kind of thing. And uh, so the question is not whether it's, 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 you have to move outside the text. You're going to have to move the text. So the question is, are you going to do it well? Or are you going to do it badly? Now, now, Scalia knew that Lyman Trumbull, who managed the 14th Amendment, assured his colleagues at the time, up and down, that nothing in that 14th Amendment was going to threaten those laws in Illinois as well as Virginia that barred marriage across racial lines. Which case I told him, well, that was, we, that's clear. That was the original understanding. And if Trumbull could not give that assurance, that 14th Amendment had no way of passing because the, the sentiment against interracial marriage was just so dominant, north as well as south. Now, if so the question was, well, did you, was, it, was the Constitution wrong, the court wrong, in taking that case on interracial marriage? But it was quite clear, utterly clear, what the understanding was of the men who framed and ratified that amendment. In order to explain that point, you're going to have to go beyond the text and behind, beyond the understanding of those men who framed it and ratified it. And you can only do that by trying to reach the real principle that explains to us the, what is wrong in racial discrimination in making moral inference about people as though race determined their moral character. I think you might have some folks, maybe on the left and the right, who say that once you open the door to 
considering things that aren't in the text of the Constitution or in the text of a statute that might be being challenged, for instance, that that opens the door to all sorts of other things, what some people might refer to as the invention of rights and things of that nature. Why do you hey, think... What's, what's, what's the revelation? People disagree over, over moral arguments? Is there anything new about that? When we have those disagreements, what do we do? We say... We are so divided, we just stop our, We stop trying to find the right answer, or do we continue the conversation? Let's take your position, Frank. It's, we'll go beyond the text. All right, what if somebody gives me that first principle? We don't hold people blameworthy or responsible for acts they were powerless to effect. Where is that in the Constitution? Are we doing something dangerous when we appeal to it? How about innocent, when, innocent until proven guilty? Are you afraid that anybody reads the text of the Constitution they're going to find that principle of innocence. Is there something dangerous in finding that principle of innocence to proven guilty? See, what is the real problem here? Unless you think there are absolutely no standards to guide you. You think that once you leave the text, you have no rational resources for gauging the difference between better and worse arguments. I mean, that's utterly impossible for grown-ups. I think. The well does doesn't the Sixth Amendment to some to some extent uh, guarantee a presumption of innocence? No, doesn't say that. The uh, well, I, I guess I guess I guess you're right. I will certainly defer you to uh, your your reading of the Sixth not Amendment. Not my text. Uh, <laughs> Nino Scalia says it may be implicit. It may be what they're assuming, but it's not there. Scalia says it's a bedrock principle of the First Amendment. You can't have restraints on the content of speech. Look. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. He's an old friend. That bedrock principle is nowhere found in my text of the First Amendment. Is there, so how does he claim to know it? Is there a finite list of natural rights that you would consider to be part of natural law that it's fair for uh, justices or judges to consider? Well, it doesn't be funny because sometimes you discover implications of your own principle that you've heretofore, you know, not noticed, right? But there are these anchoring truths that, uh, that get, like, you don't hold people blame for the acts they're powerless to affect. If Jones were in intensive surgery following, uh, following intensive care following surgery, he could not have committed that burglary. If Jones was not in control of himself, he's under hypnosis. He couldn't be held mm-hmm. responsible. The same principle comes into play for things like racial uh, dis- discrimination. Um, ordinary people, tell the, ask the ordinary man. If I told you that somebody, here's a critical principle. Uh, Lincoln once said, in this debate with Douglas, Douglas said, look, some places they have laws on uh, oysters in Maine, laws on cranberries, and some places you slave labor. Lincoln said, no, those things are not on the same plane. Oysters and cranberries are morally indifferent. What do we mean by that? If you ask the man on the street, Frank, if I tell you that someone is short and tall, that he stutters, that he has diabetes, 
Can you make any inferences to whether you're dealing with a good or bad map? The average man, I said, well, no, these people could be as good or as bad as anyone else, right? Well, if, if that's the case, you find later a case that came up in Long Island that a child is afflicted with spina bifida and Down syndrome, and the parents are willing to remove medical treatment for the child on the ground that a life afflicted with spina bifida is a life not worth living. As Judge uh, Winter argument the court below, if you withdraw medical care because the child was the wrong race, that's not a medical judgment. And if you're withdrawing judgment or care because you think a child afflicted with spina bifida, Don Central can't leave a life of moral purpose, even in his diminished state. That is not a medical judgment. Well, that is the way these things play out. Or just take something as simple. You know, um, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And Thomas Reed said, you might as well have said, you're sleeping, therefore you am. I'm doing nothing, therefore. Your identity, your own personal existence has never been a subject of doubt with you. As, as an old line went, an amnesiac may doubt who he is. He doubt, doesn't doubt that he is. So Brown tells us now, I'm not actually the same person you arrested for embezzlement last Friday. I've been can completely ch- ch- changed. I'm not the same person. We say, no, regrettably, Brown, it's your identity. You have not lost that identity through all these successive stages. There's, some, there, there's so many... The things are so elementary, Frank, that we're not even aware they're using them. Take, a, take just a, as an ordinary example. I was a couple of years ago in my wonderful apartment building in Washington. We were put out on the grounds because the fighting, the fire department was fighting a fire. Let me tell you, Frank, it was vexing. Nobody wanted to be out there for two or three hours with no liberty to enter our own apartment. Sure. Our liberty was being restricted. But no, I swear to you, Frank, nobody out there thought our rights were being violated. Mm. Why is that? Because they framed it in a common sense way. Yes, our freedom's being restricted, but for reasons that are justified, because the reasons were directed to our, to our protection and our lives. I see a youngster poised on Connecticut Avenue, ready to go on the subway with a bicycle. And I say, my gosh, can you do that? He says, yes, but not during rush hour. <laughs> the, the, the kid understands and it's certainly reasonable not to go taking up space like his liberty is being restricted but he understands it's justified my point Frank is that these are matters of common sense and the way ordinary people frame a moral questions every day yes it's restricted but it was rightful it was, rightful. It was justified funny, there is nothing esoteric about this there's nothing uh uh, 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 there's nothing just too complicated about it. Ordinary people do it every day. And part of the pitch in the book is that you have to go beyond. Look, let's take the matter of uh, the transgender case. Andrew Stevens says he re- earnestly believes that he is turned into a woman. And therefore, the holding is uh, all the people around him who refuse to respect that judgment are now violating, engaged in sexual discrimination. They could be put in legal peril. Their employers could be put in legal peril for contributing to a hostile work environment. And the, the conservatives think, well, what did, what did sexual discrimination mean in the statute of 1964? And they try to interpret it. And they think, well, it possibly could have meant this. 
Well, look, you have to ask, what kind of, how much, how many tanks spent in absorbing theories of statutory construction that would lead you to a judgment that every ordinary man would see as imbecilic? Any ordinary man could tell that Andrew Stevens has not turned into a woman. He knows that there are such, there's an objective difference between males and females. There has to be, because we wouldn't have human beings if we didn't have, quote, males and females. Mm-hmm. That, is the, that is the objective meaning of sex. So what you find, what passes itself as originalism or conservative jurisprudence, that we are confined entirely to construing the text, but we may not make an appeal to that objective, inescapable truth, say, on sex that stands outside the Constitution, which, of course, all of the founders understood at once. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Hadley Arcus. His book is Mere Natural Law, Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. We're almost out of time, but there's two final areas that I want to get into with you, and I hope you'll come back in the future because it's a a thought-provoking discussion that has caused me to, just talking with you, uh, think of a whole bunch of new questions. But I, I can see different people making different moral judgments, having different values. Some people may have have uh, different, uh, very strong feelings about what a natural right is or what natural law is and might be even able to cite different historical precedent to that effect. Some would say maybe that's why there should be a great deal of deference to both the democratically elected representatives of the people, since they speak directly for the people that are being governed now, and or to juries who might be able to, through guilt or innocence or through monetary damages, consider all of the factors which might be some degree of common sense that you're alluding to here. What do you think about both of those principles, deference to the democratically elected representatives and deference to juries? Okay, from a couple of different angles. Frank, Frank what I'm putting forth, the kind of judges, I'm, principles I'm arguing for, of judges who think in terms of categorical or necessary truths. That judge tells you that we don't know what the, what the right price of nature is for a pair of pants or for rent controls. That judge will not tell you what the right residence requirement is before a state has to start making subsidized higher education available to its residents and new residents. That is the kind of decision that can only be made by somebody who is sensitive to the means and the sentiments, the generosity of the local. That, that, the, the, the standards for making those judgments can't be find, found anywhere in the toolkit of judges. But remember, the classic position is you have a presumptive claim to all dimensions of your living, not simply those mentioned in the Bill of Rights. You're right to make a living. You're right to make a living shiny shoes, braiding hair. But what comes along with this is that every law imposes a restriction on personal freedom. And so it's everything a legislature, the legislatures do these things, they may have to be aware that the law has to carry a burden of justification in explaining why it's justified in barring the freedom of people to make their livings as tattoo parlors or make their livings, livings uh, uh, braiding hair. Or in the case of uh, Oklahoma, that classic case of Skinner versus Oklahoma, that the legislation decides that it knows what forms of criminality are genetically transmissible, and they decided that chicken thieving is one of those. 
well, we'll sterilize his chickens even now. We may not block him from stealing chickens again, but we won't. But he won't be perpetuating his kind. Well, of course, it's quite legitimate for the court to say, look, you're, you're doing something serious to somebody. Not only restricting his freedom, but simply his freedom to engage in procreation later. But you, shouldn't you be carrying a heavier burden of proof to tell us how you know that this kind of crime is genetically transmissible before you do this to somebody? So, frankly, I'm telling you, yes, I'm, I'm a believer in, in there's a strong reason to do things in legislatures because legislatures reflect a wide range of opinion in the, in the community. It tells us where one interest is colliding with another and tells people, look, you're going to have to make a strong case to show why this policy of yours should be accepted by people who have interests other than your own. That's a fine discipline. It should be. But it doesn't remove the critical moral discipline that must ever affect the making of laws by legislatures, which is, are we indeed justified in saying that a child before it's viable in the womb is ceases, it's no longer, it's not a human being yet? Where do we get that, where, where do we get that premise? Where do we get that evidence standing mm. against the evidence of embryology? Why is it somehow wrong to bring in the powerful evidence of embryology that tells us that that offspring of the womb has never been anything other than human from its first, first moments, and it's never been merely a part of the mother? It may be nine months in the womb, it may be six months, but it's not a different being. It's the same being in the process of growth. Look, these are all legitimate things, right, to bring into play whether you're asking a legislature to justify itself, whether you're asking judges to justify themselves. That is supposed to be the mm. discipline of judgment in all these domains, whether we're dealing with legislatures or with judges. So the argument for natural law is simply, again, that, yeah, we, we, we take seriously the notion that there are standards there. Yeah, people can always be involved in a moral argument. They, they, they don't think the black, they don't think the 19th century, think, argue, well, they're not sure black people are really human. There's somewhere between they're animals and, and real human beings. Because human beings, we look more like us, these blonde, white characters. Well, uh, it's quite legitimate to rate. We're having a moral argument. Uh, Mr. Arcus, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time this morning, and I'm wishing you the best of luck with the book. If people are interested in learning more about what we've been touching upon, they could check out the book, Mere Natural Law. It's available on Amazon and on a lot of places where books are sold. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, thanks, Frank. Good luck with your program. Thank you. If you want to be heard and comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.